Hi, everyone, and welcome to NCEA Podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and welcome to this week's podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by FACTS. FACTS serves over 4,000 Catholic schools with financial management tools, admissions solutions, a student information and learning management system, and professional development opportunities for students, leaders, and educators. They are eagerly supporting Catholic schools with a number of resources to help facilitate learning during the pandemic. One of the solutions they offer is the FACTS Family App, which is an online portal that allows families and parishioners to receive regular communication and monitor student progress with access to all student and financial information. To learn more about this mobile communication tool for your families, visit FactsManagement.com. That's F-A-C-T-S-M-G-T dot com. Uh, as mentioned last week, we have part two of our conversation with John Schoenig from the Alliance for Catholic Education at the University of Notre Dame, where we talk about school choice and where we are in the country, uh, the Espinosa decision, and all of the impacts for Catholic schools. So sit back and enjoy part two of uh, my conversation with John Schoenig. But really what Breyer wanted to know is that um, giving money to the public system, which is secular under the Establishment Clause, um, will it, under Espinosa, trigger a state duty to proportionally fund private religious schools? Uh, this is obviously something very hypothetical, but I'm just curious about your thinking on that and in terms of one of the steps maybe that, that we can be thinking about school choice in, in the coming years. Yeah, um, I, uh, I know you and I talked, talked a little bit about this before, and I was out... I was wondering whether you were going to uh, go right to um, that portion of the oral argument. It's obviously a very, um, it, it, it's, it has aroused um, quite a bit of interest uh, across the Catholic school and just the broader uh, and reformed community. So let me try to um, answer this in, in um, like in, in two manners. So the first is, um, like a, a very practical kind of like what what do I see coming out of um, uh, one that that conversation um, and the opinion itself and the little bit that I know about kind of uh, what may be circling out there uh, in the in, in the K twelve sector. It would seem to me that um, there will ultimately be a push to see whether a religious charter school as charter schools are understood uh, currently understood whether a religious charter school is going to uh well what, what, what the court's going to have to say about that given espinosa let's put it that way um now i don't know that that to me doesn't seem like a tomorrow question or the or the day after tomorrow that that's probably like in order for it to really come to its fullness it's going to take a couple years to really sort that out because there are questions about like what would the state law itself permit um it, it's it's unclear to me so it's not like an immediate question well could we have you know like a catholic charter school i have my own opinions about whether that would be a good idea but I don't think that that was really what, what you were asking. So, so that's the first point. The second point is something that I think is is kind of um, it's animating 
Justice Breyer's question, or at least I, I see it as animating Justice Breyer's question. And it's really kind of what's like, it's at the heart of everything they're talking about in the Espinosa decision. And this is something that uh, our friend Howard Fuller has talked about a great deal. And it is the conflation of two things in American discourse that has led to, this conflation has led to no end of kind of mischief and misunderstanding. And the conflation is the conflation between public education and public school. Um, the way that Howard often explains this is, you know, perhaps rightly understood, public education is a concept. And the concept essentially stands for this principle that the state has a responsibility to ensure that every child receive a quality education. And public school, perhaps rightly understood, is a delivery mechanism on that concept. But, you know, this kind of, this, um, this gets at the heart of, you know, a question that someone like Andy Smarrick or um, Kathleen Porter McGee, of course, our friend Nicole Garnett, so many other people, Checker Finn, have done so much better than I. This kind of, um, Ashley Burner, for sure, uh, has mm -hmm. talked about this. There is this, um, we have this phenomenon in the United States where we, we, we combine the idea of the state as the operator of schools with the idea of the state as the regulator of schools. And what that has led to is a world in which for more than 150 years, Catholic schools were obviously private insofar as they were operated privately. They were operated by the state, but they were also, for all intents and purposes, minimally regulated, right? So that like most of the regulation in education was the state regulating the state, the schools it operated. But the moment you get to 1990 and you have the first voucher program and then a few months later, the first charter program, what starts to happen is the state is saying, well, you know what? We don't have to operate all of the schools we regulate. And perhaps there are ways that we can be beefing up the regulation of schools that we're not directly operating and lead to a more robust educational sector, right? Like a, a broad K-12 sector. And so part of, I'm sorry for the long answer, part of what I see going on in Espinosa um, including and perhaps most specifically in Justice Breyer's answer is this idea that like, are we ultimately moving to a place where the idea of these boundaries between like the, the public sector and the private sector or, you know, public schools, charter schools and, and private schools, the boundaries don't need to be as firm as we've, we've understood them to be for quite some time. So could there be a way for the state to um, I know that regulation can be kind of a dirty word, but for the state to change the way it regulates, quote unquote, non-public schools, say Catholic schools, that would allow for greater support for Catholic school families. That's what I think is part of what, what Justice Breyer is asking about. Now, of course, because it's in the context of Espinosa, he's, he's asking, well, what about the God stuff? You know, are we going to have a problem with the God stuff there? Right. Okay, so that's great. Um, and of course, every time you talk, I get a thousand more questions. But um, so 
part of what you're describing too in my mind is almost how the charter schools started you know almost 20 30 years ago um in terms of these opportunities to it was a little bit more maybe experimental and and trying to try things and get out of the structured system of how you know the state um quotes around the state runs schools and gives some freedom and some autonomy to trying new things and of course we've seen kind of how that's gone and and obviously there's some challenges with charters right now um from from my uh thinking uh in terms of this i think this all paints the picture of what's potential and i think you're right to say that we might be years away from anything of significance um one of the things i and i know we've talked about this so this is not new to you but one of one of the things i think that we've got to communicate to catholic schools today today right now is to really start to think about how are you ensuring that your metrics and what you're measuring from an outcome perspective and that goes to academics but it also can go to all those qualitative uh, outcomes that we want to see from a faith formation perspective from a quality individual perspective etc cetera, etc cetera. how do you focus on making sure that you have very clear metrics of success that you can demonstrate your effectiveness um, because if something like this is to happen in two three four five years um, having something structured where you can demonstrate how effective you are as a Catholic school will be vitally important for that dirty word of regulation or, 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 uh, or affirmation of the fact that you are offering a very high quality program. So that, that's one that I've thought about and we've talked about, but what, what do, would you suggest for Catholic schools today, recognizing that some of the things you're talking about will be um, potential down the line? What should they be thinking about um, in the immediate near-term future? Yeah, so um, th that's a great question. Um, and I, I, I don't know why I feel the need to, um, to qualify this. I am not a social scientist. Um, so I, I don't, I, I'm probably gonna fumble with the, the language here. Maybe I'll, I'll just try to speak um, in kind of broad terms. So, I, I mean, obviously, it's impossible to have any sort of meaningful conversation like right now on what we're talking on October 23rd. It's, it's impossible to have any conversation about Catholic schools and the path forward and not recognize just the, I mean, the unique, the utterly distinctive moment we're in with because given COVID. Sure. I think that there's a, there's an opportunity here apropos of your question, Kevin. Um, there's an opportunity for Catholic schools in this regard. There are many Catholic schools right now that have seen changes in enrollment where like th there are families there that if they were being perfectly honest would say, we are here because we can't get into the local public school that we would normally go to, right? In a sense, like we are here because the other option isn't available or isn't available in the way that we wanted it. So this begs the question about, well, what happens when that's not true anymore? What, what happens when that, 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 that what, what used to, like what your, your public school is available to you again? This is you know, largely gonna be like a suburb and ex-urban phenomenon, but perhaps somewhat in some ways in urban areas, but I, I suspect more in, in suburban and ex-urban areas. What's gonna happen when the families can go back, right? It's right now that Catholic schools should be saying, not just, why, like, why would someone come here? But why would they stay? 
why like why would someone stay once the other alternative get it becomes available regardless of whether like they actually have anybody that's in that situation like why would someone who just came to your school quote unquote because of covid why would they stay in a world you know god willing one that will come quite soon a world beyond covid why would they stay that is a question of, um, you know, obviously it takes some like methodological sophistication. It takes some ability to actually get into what, what measures define most clearly our value add. And that's not going to be the same for every single Catholic school across the country. It may not, it's probably not the same for every Catholic school in a given diocese. But now is when school leaders and in particular superintendents or leaders of various like independent school networks, they should be thinking about that. Because first of all, it's going to be relevant in a in a in a world in which, um, you know, the, the sort of like the atmospheric change with regards to to like the, the just the, the the context change I should say the context change with regard to the pandemic, but I also think that, you know, it's it really is incredible. Like the pandemic in and of itself has changed the way I think that that families think about the parental right to direct one's the education of their children, right? Like the pandemic in and of itself does that. And then Espinosa speaks to that too. So the two at the same time, to me, it's a, um, obviously the pandemic is a, it is a tragedy. Um, so it's not like, it, I don't wanna say it's providential, but it is that intersection really creates, I think an extraordinary opportunity for school leaders to say, how can we most succinctly and persuasively articulate why someone would stay here, what, what our unique value add is. Because, you know, last April, May was the first time in American history that where we had a situation in which no one, no, there were no children in like bricks and mortar schools every day. I mean, it just, it radically changed the way that people have to think about what goes on in school and why they have their kids where they have their kids. You know, it's such a great point you make too. And I, I, I wrote down before you even talked about it, about the COVID crisis in terms of will they stay? Uh, and then you, and so I think what I'm hearing you say is that, um, and again, we always have to clarify and make sure we want to make sure very, very clear that COVID is a tragedy for the people impacted physically and health and health wise. But in terms of it being, I don't know, a, a test run, if you will, like what is your school culture like? What are your academic outcomes like? And if you're asking the question or if you're worried about the answer to the question of will these students who come to us um, by virtue of need, really not marketing or not attraction, they're just they want to be in person and we're in person and that's their option. Uh, will they stay? Um, that's a question you should be asking on a broader scale um, because what Espinosa might lead to in five, 10 years are people having those options. And the fact is, I always, you know, the whole adage, you can market bad dog food one time. And once people have the bad dog food, they're not going to come back to it again. And I want to make sure I'm really clear. I'm not saying Catholic schools are bad dog food. But what I'm saying is that if we we are going to have an opportunity at some point to have people consider Catholic schools, they're considering it now with COVID. Uh, obviously, there are limitations in terms of what we can, you know, have how many students we can have in a classroom. So we're some, somewhat limited. If that Espinosa future happens at some point and, and just magically think of the day where, where more states have this option, you're going to have public school parents and students considering Catholic schools. We want to make sure that that experience 
for them is so incredible and so tremendous that they would never ever consider going back to to another school system and and that to me is what i've always tried to communicate with even when i was superintendent you know principals uh, and superintendents now in terms of this should be the focus of your work at this point is really just making sure because that's what we can control we can't control what the courts do with espinosa moving forward that's going to happen regardless of what the catholic school principal or superintendent does what they can do today is start to really make sure that all of those quality metrics from culture to outcomes to academics to faith formation are 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 rock solid strong in every single school yeah so this is a kind of it's like a you could say metaphysical it's a broader philosophical issue but i i I think about this all the time about, you know, um, in the context of like, okay, educational choice. I think it, it, is, it is fair to say that for all of, like, I'll, I'll just, well, I'll make it about me. For all of the talking that I do about how important school choice is and how it, it's, it cuts to the very heart of Catholic social teaching and who we are as a people, a Catholic school community. The fact of the matter is that Catholic schools, for the majority of their history, were not built on the principle of maximizing educational choice. So, like, you take, for example, like my relatives, right? My mother attended a given Catholic school not because my grandmother looked around and said, what is going to be the best school for my, my, for, for my family, for my kids? She went to that school. She went to St. Mary Star of the Sea in Far Rockaway because she lived in that parish. And that's exactly where she went. So while parents were, in a sense, directing, and they were, I mean, families were the primary educators, much of the parish school system and even the secondary school system was built on this principle. I mean, the parish is built on this kind of idea of quasi-residential assignment. So. Right. Catholic education broadly, it's not as if widespread kind of like, and I, I know this word has negative connotations, like market type choice and agency is real, has really historically been part and parcel of what Catholic schools have been about. Now, of course, all of that changes to some degree, I, I think to a pretty large degree, um, in 1990 and 91 with the advent of charter schools and then of publicly funded private school choice, where now families have the ability or a greater ability to choose where they're going to go. That coupled with kind of the breakdown or the erosion of the idea that your address determines which parish school you go to, it has radically altered, you know, how schools have to think about things like market share, right? It just, it changes the way that they have to think about that. So, it, it, I'm, I'm probably just repeating, I hope I'm not contradicting, I don't mean to be redundant with you, Kevin, but it's it's like even leaving Espinosa aside, these are super important questions right now because choice is only going to, you can't unring that bell. And especially in the context of the pandemic, parents I think now are more aware, they are more self-aware of their ability to make choices about where and how their kids are educated. So as that continues forward, schools have to be able to articulate, they, first of all, they have to articulate it, but second of all, they have to actually live it out. They actually have to provide a quality educational experience. Um, 
So I think there's like, in addition to like, you have the legal issue, you have the kind of the pandemic contextual issue, and then you have the historical issue of just, we're not really accustomed to this. It's such a great point. And, and I'll just, um, in the stat that is, I use a lot is from LA where I was and, and post-World War II to 1960, I think, the Archdiocese of LA opened on average one Catholic school every 20 days. Um, and that massive growth was driven by this anti-choice description that you've just gone through, that, that parents didn't cross parish boundaries. So if you were in that parish, you sent your kid to that parish school. And I guess what I would, um, been a little long, but what I would close with then is the other piece that I've been focused on through my career and really think about a lot is in terms of um, Catholic schools being geographically close to each other, which we had in Los Angeles, you have actually a lot of large urban areas, but also there are uh, smaller dioceses that have Catholic schools that are relatively close, is this idea of being creative and innovative in terms of what your local Catholic school can provide. So even if we somehow magically um, had funding uh, support for families, if you have three Catholic schools that are within a five to 10 mile radius, um, you need to differentiate in some way. You need to think creatively about what your community actually needs and maybe even partner and collaborate with those other schools and say, look, maybe you can offer dual language, we'll offer a STEM, we'll offer. Um, and so you can kind of almost segment and think about that in terms of, of, of what you can do. And, and I think all of these pieces, um, it's, it's the challenge of our time because we've got to be thinking about all of them at the same time and seeing how they're going to kind of the dots are going to connect, um, you know, at some point um, in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, um, a, a guy, Mike McShane. Um, yes, I know Mike. Yeah. So, yeah, he wrote that book uh, or he had that book, New and Better Schools. And Mike often uses this term institutional isomorphism. Right. And it's just this idea that over time, what happens to institutions that start out promoting differentiation and innovation, they become more and more and more similar because you want to regulate, you want to make sure you're defining quality. This is in some ways, not entirely, but in some ways what's happened to the charter sector. That's the risk for Catholic schools, to your point. If you've got four schools within a, a mile and a half radius, does it make sense for them to all look just about the same? Probably not in a world in which there's expansive choice and parents are, are you know, kind of are experiencing this greater awareness about their, their, their agency. Uh, you know, I, I love quotes and I just saw one from Steve Jobs recently. I have it in front of me. So, and it connects to this idea that we've been talking about. And his quote is, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and it's made all the difference in my life. And I think about that in terms of, you know, Espinosa and what we're looking at now and we can imagine and vision kind of what that can mean. But there is so much work to be done right now and the trust has to be in what Catholic schools are doing across the country in terms of, of leadership and innovation and academic excellence and all of those pieces. And that has to be the obviously the, the work that's for, first and foremost in, in Catholic educators' minds um, at this time. So, John, thank you uh, so much uh, for being with us. Um, I've loved this conversation. I, I know people are going to appreciate it. Um, we do, uh, it's okay to kind of nerd out sometimes, hopefully, and uh, get into these details. Um, obviously the impacts um, remain to be seen,
but we think it's important for Catholic educators across uh, the country just to be aware of this. So, uh, so they can obviously follow within their own states, uh, within their own realities in terms of uh, in terms of what's happening. So, John, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Uh, this is Kevin Baxter, Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and that is uh, this episode of NCEA Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. God bless. Thank you.